Okay, while everybody is uh, finding their seat, just want to um, uh, make a couple of announcements. Uh, Jeff is still looking for at least one more uh, person to accompany him to Brazil in November to help with teaching. He's got several things that are going on. Uh, one great answer to prayer I mentioned last week was Ray Mondragon. They needed someone to teach hermeneutics. He's taught hermeneutics over for Jim Myers for several years at Word of God Bible College as well as for Chafer Seminary. And so that's a tremendous answer to prayer. Also, we're going to have a game night on September the 8th, and that's going to that's a Friday night, and that's going to begin about 5.30 to 8, and then we'll uh, announce some other things related to that. Uh, primary focus here is to reach out to a lot of the families, the kids that came to Vacation Bible School just to do some follow-up with them, but also um, it's good for the congregation to get together now and then and have a little, have a little fun. I've got a couple of films in mind, so we're going to have some uh, movie night. I think uh, we did this a while back. Sometimes you forget that a while back is a little further back than than you thought. And uh, Mark Perk, I mean Mark Friedrich, said that he mentioned it to a couple of people. They said, "Well, I don't ever remember doing that." So, uh, yeah, we used to do that for for uh, two or three, four years when we first uh, moved to this space. So, uh, also the men's camp out on October. Uh, 20th, 21st, the Museum of the Bible trip next April, as well as a trip to Israel next year. Information on those things will be on the uh, church and the Dean Bible Ministries uh, website. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, confess any sins that come to mind, and God instantly forgives us of those sins as well as cleansing us from all other unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful we had this time to come together to focus upon your word for, as I just recited in John 17, our Lord said that it is through your word that we are sanctified, that we grow spiritually, that it is your word that is sufficient to enable us to face and surmount any situation, any adversity, as well as to handle the problems that come from prosperity. Father, we know that your word strengthens and sustains us, and Father, we know that there are folks in this congregation, as we've mentioned in our prayer meeting uh, previously, that are sick. Some have serious, potentially life-threatening diseases. Others are uh, facing the debilitating effects of those diseases, and um, there may not be a cure. And Father, we also pray that you would strengthen um, each one of those people and their testimonies, their witness. Father, we pray for them that you would uh, comfort their families as well. Father, we're Thankful for the opportunity we have to be faithful witnesses of your grace, of your goodness, and of the sufficiency of our salvation. And Father, we pray that we might be sensitive to take a hold of opportunities to explain the gospel to those who are desperately in need of truth. Father, help us as we think through the closing chapters of 1 Samuel tonight and this final incident as we transition from the first part of the book to the second part of the book. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. I want to uh, go over one doctrine before we finish up, and it's one I touched on as we ended last week. The example that David gave to his men, which shows that he has passed at least this test. 
And I pointed out several times that there are certain similarities between David in his period from his anointing to his uh, inauguration as king, where God took him through a series of tests, and those tests are related to the promise, the personal promise that God gave him that he would be king. Not unlike the situation that Abraham faced when God gave him specific promises related to a seed, a son, a descendant through whom God would richly bless all nations. And Abraham had to learn to trust God in light of that promise. God gives specific promises to us in the New Testament, the church age. And the test for us is do we believe those and do we live on that basis? Do we truly trust God on a day-to-day basis or do we wait and trust God only when all of our human uh, resources have uh, not uh, been able to uh, take care of us and then finally as a last-ditch effort uh, turn to the Lord? David has passed his test and one of the almost the frosting on the cake as it were of this this last test where he provided the protection for uh, not only his family but the family of all of his men as the Amalekites had attacked uh, and destroyed Ziklag but had taken captive all of the uh, their families all of their wives, children, taken much uh, plunder and booty, along with many other uh, towns, villages in the Negev, in the southern part of of Israel. And so David and his men went after them. Uh, They attacked them, and they destroyed them, and recaptured the booty. And all of those that had been taken captive were rescued. It reminds us a little bit of what happened again in the life of Abraham when the uh, kings of the east under Keterleomer came th- sweeping through uh, Israel, the land of Canaan at that time, Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plains, taking captive, taking much booty and heading back north. And then De- uh, Abraham took his servants with him and they attacked them in the area of uh, what became the city of Dan, up in the north of Israel and re- and defeated them and recovered all the captives and the booty. And then as Abraham distributed that booty, as well as gave uh, 10% to Melchizedek in uh, Jerusalem, so we see David exercising that same kind of graciousness in the way that he is distributing uh, the plunder, and this is described in the last part of that chapter. This is all part of grace orientation, and we talk a lot about grace orientation, and as I've studied this and talked about people, a lot of times what's emphasized when grace orientation is taught is two things, important things. There's, we don't take away from it. Grace orientation is understanding that in the plan of salvation, that our relationship to God is based upon his grace. It's based upon an unmerited favor from God. But there's more to grace orientation than that, and I've taught different facets and aspects of grace orientation over the years, that grace orientation involves humility, which is foundational to learning, to being teachable, to responding to what God has. It doesn't mean you're perfect. And when we look at the life of David... And these last chapters in Samuel are, are, are written the way they are to invite us to compare and contrast Saul with David. One chapter talks about Saul, the next one talks about David, uh, then Saul, it goes back and forth because these events are contemporaneous, and that's part of it. But the other part is to draw these comparisons, this contrast between David and Saul. Saul was not grace-oriented. And David is grace-oriented. Saul is not humble. He's arrogant. Uh, David was humble. That doesn't mean David is perfect any more than it means that Saul was always evil or or wicked. Uh, Saul was probably fairly moral. He's never accused of immorality. He's accused of idolatry in a mental or spiritual sense because he was rebellious against the plan of God. That flowed out of his 
uh, lack of grace orientation. He's not dependent upon the Lord. One of the things that we see with Saul, Saul is made king because the people wanted to have a king like all the other nations. They wanted to be like everybody else, and that's exactly what God gave them. Gave them a king like everybody else, a king that was uh, arrogant, self-absorbed, not spiritual, but he was saved. We've gone over the evidence for Saul's uh, salvation in previous lessons. He is saved. There's evidence of that early on, but he is never going, he is never truly submitted to God. David, on the other hand, commits some egregious sins. His sins are no worse or no better than Saul's sins. But the difference between Saul and David is that David has, again and again, the scripture says he has a heart after God. He's a man after God's own heart. And what that phrase means is that uh, despite the fact that David committed various horrendous overt sins and mental attitude sins, David wanted to obey God. He just had a problem with his sin nature that he let get out of control a few times. I know that doesn't happen to anybody here, but we know a few people like that, and they let their sin nature get, get the best of them and get out of control. But the bottom line is that Saul really wasn't focused on what God wanted for him. God's will wasn't what he wanted for his life. That's what David wanted. The contrast is that at the core of their soul, David is a man who really wants to obey the Lord, but his sin nature gets the best of him at times. Saul really doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. He is a perfect picture of the carnal believer, the believer who, who's saved, but they just live a disobedient, rebellious life and reaps the consequences of it. David, on the other hand, understands God's grace, and he understands it more and more as he fails, which is what we'll see in, as we come to Second Samuel, because in Second Samuel is where we really get into David's reign, and there we see David's magnificent failures as well as his magnificent successes. So I wanted to just summarize uh, the doctrine of grace orientation. What does the Bible teach us about grace orientation? It isn't just about our relationship to God in terms of justification. It's not just about our relationship with God in terms of our spiritual growth. It's foundational to both. But there's more to it than that in terms of, and as we often apply this, in terms of a problem-solving device. And the problem that usually comes into play here has to do with people testing. And we get tested with people all the time because it's unfortunate we're so good that we have to deal with all these idiots and sinners and self-absorbed people around us that if they would just get their act together, life would be pretty good for us. I'm being sarcastic here because sometimes people don't get sarcasm. So we have to understand that grace orientation applies to handling people problems. We need to treat them in grace, but we have to understand that God deals with us in grace and how undeserving we are to begin with. So the first point is that grace means unmerited favor or undeserved undeserved kindness, undeserved merit, undeserved un, unearned goodness, all of those terms. And the key is that we don't do anything to deserve kindness, generosity, goodness, the blessing of God, uh, the benevolence of God, all of this has absolutely nothing to do with who we are. God gives these things to us because of who he is and what his plan is, and it has nothing to do with how we respond to it. It's all based on his character. Now, the flip side of that is we're to imitate God. 
That means we are going to treat people not on the basis of who they are or what they've done or what they deserve, but on the basis of what's best for them. And that shows a connection between biblical love and grace. Because when, it, when John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way, and it uses that term love, people just hardly ever understand that term. Love is a mental attitude. It's a volitional decision to do that which is best for the object of the love. But when you use that word best, that immediately brings in a value judgment, doesn't it? And you can have somebody who's carnal like Saul... And Saul says, I'm going to love David. I'm going to do what's best for him. I'm going to kill him. (laughs) That's not what's best for David. That's what's best for Saul. So uh, someone who's not oriented to Scripture, uh, oriented or have their thinking aligned to the Word of God, when they say they're doing something that's best for somebody, more often than not, it's what's best for them. There's a self-absorption. Read through the description in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8 of what love is. And it's not seeking its own. There's, there's an absence of self-absorption in biblical love. And we are to love. And that is, love is foundational to the idea of grace. So God's love for us is based on his character and his perfect righteousness. We can't base our love for somebody else on our character because our character, to put it rather bluntly, stinks. But God's character is good. So we, as a Christian, to say I love you to somebody really means for us, for that to have significance means that somehow we've thought this through that my love for other people has to be based on God's righteousness and his integrity, not on mine. And that's why biblical love, the kind of love Jesus talks about that is the mark of a disciple, that's a growing, maturing believer, the kind of love that is that characterizes a growing, maturing believer is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. It's not something we can manufacture on our own. It's something that's produced supernaturally in us as we walk by the Spirit. So grace is is kindness, goodness, benevolence to somebody that they don't deserve. Second thing we see about grace is it's freely given without condition. Well, I'm going to give you this as long as you behave a certain way. Now, that's the kind of beha- uh, kind of love and grace a lot of folks grow up under in their home. They get that from their parents. It's a conditional love because they have parents that are either unbelievers or they're parents who are not believers who are maturing. And as a result, they never see this exemplified. So grace is given without condition. It's treating someone with kindness even though they may be treating you extremely badly. Grace is freely given without condition and apart from merit in the beneficiary. That's the person that you're being kind to. Third observation is that grace is grace in relation to our salvation and also the spiritual life operates through the non-meritorious operation of faith. Now that's really an important thing to think about. It operates through faith, not because of faith. And I've said this many times talking about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now, some people come along and they say that that not of yourselves relates back to faith. But it can't because it does that that as a as a relative pronoun, doesn't agree in gender with, with faith, which is a, a feminine noun. We're saved by grace. Well, grace is a feminine noun either. So it can't refer to grace through faith. It, it doesn't even refer to that phrase, for by grace you have been saved. It refers to that whole phrase, that this grace by faith salvation 
is the gift of God. The reason I say that is recently somebody was exposed to some Calvinistic teaching on this, that faith is given, and and um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 was brought up, and they say it's the grace and the faith that's given. You've got to look at the whole phrase, for by grace through faith, you're sal- it's a salvation that's by grace through faith. You can't leave the salvation out. It's And if you go back a couple of verses before Ephesians 2 8 back to about I think it's verse 3 you have that phrase by grace through faith that salvation by grace through faith and that pick Paul picks that idea back up in verse 8 so that's how that's connected and it's this by grace through faith salvation he adds that word salvation in verse verse 8 so it's important. Now, faith means to believe something. And everybody can believe. If you've got an IQ beyond a certain point, you can believe something, but you have to understand it. A lot of people think, well, I just believe. Well, no, you have to understand something to believe it. Now, that doesn't mean you have to understand it totally. doesn't mean you have to understand it comprehensively. I believe in the Trinity, but I don't understand it. I understand what the doctrine is, but I don't exhaustively comprehend the Trinity. If I did, you'd have to call somebody and take me off in a little ambulance or something off to a hospital. But we understand the concept. We understand that our salvation is is based on what Christ did on the cross, but we don't understand that exhaustively. We understand that there's a transaction there where Christ pays the penalty for us. And the faith focuses on an object. Now, what happens in Calvinism is Calvinism comes along and says you've got to have the right kind of faith. They say there's a faith that saves and there's a faith that doesn't save. There's a faith in Christ that doesn't save. Now, I always ask the question, where do you get that idea? And the the example's always the same. It comes out of John 2 when... Jesus has performed certain miracles, and in John 2 it says that, that there, were, uh, uh, there were many who were saved because of the signs that Jesus did. But then it says Jesus didn't trust himself to them. And so the Calvinistic answer is that the reason that Jesus doesn't trust himself to them is because they they didn't have the right kind of faith. It was a faith based on signs. John MacArthur has said that in print. It's a faith based on signs. Well, wait a minute. Let's go to John 20, 31. Jim's already there. Listen listen to me. John 23, these what are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. These signs. The Gospel of John says there are seven signs plus the resurrection. And if you understand these signs, they point to Jesus as the Messiah, the one that God promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. And if you understand that, you believe in him, but that faith that John's talking about in John 20, 30 and 31 is this faith that's based on signs. So if sign-based faith is not a saving faith, then let's rip the Gospel of John out of our Bibles and go somewhere else and, and maybe join some cult that emphasizes works. So faith has got to be non-meritorious. That means the merit's not on me because I was smart enough to have the faith. The faith is in the object of the faith. The value is in what Jesus did and what we're believing in. And John 3 gives that perfect illustration. It goes back to the episode in the wilderness with the Israelites when uh, God was disciplining them for their disobedience, and and he sent this these poisonous vipers into the camp and people are dying left and right. It it is a discipline that's related to something we'll talk about in chapter uh, 31 related to the sin unto death. But God provides a solution. And that solution is that Moses was to make a, a, a bronze image of a serpent on a pole and lift it up. And if people just looked at that pole, they'd be healed. But they had to look the right way. Right? I mean, if you're going to go along with MacArthur and the Calvinists, you've got to have two different kinds of looking. 
You've got to have a looking that saves and a looking that doesn't save. So the object of faith is Christ. The object of faith is the Word of God. That's what gives our faith value, not faith, because you exercise faith when you got in your car tonight. You just got in the car and put a key in the ignition or punched a button, and you just believed it would start. The people who believed it would start and it didn't start aren't here yet because they had to call AAA. But those of us who believed it, we didn't even think about it. We just pressed the button and the car started. Non-meritorious faith is that it's not me. It's not because I was smart enough to understand the gospel. It's not because I was smart enough to go to Bible class. It's because Jesus did the work on the cross. He's the object. So grace means that God does all the work and man trusts exclusively. That's that word that is a synonym for only. Faith alone in Christ alone. Only faith in only Christ. It's not faith plus works. It's not Christ plus evidence or works in our life. When we believe in Jesus, we realize God did all the work. We believe it, and God blesses us because of what he did. Legalism says that we do certain things that somehow get God's attention. They gain his approval. He validates us because we're basically good. Recently, I get this little blurb every day in an email that that comes out of... uh, a website that that looks at different books and gives you a little three or four paragraph uh, three or four paragraphs from those books that's usually pretty interesting and every now and then you run across a book you want to read and this was a book on on uh, I think it was a book on Buddhism and it talked about the fact that in survey after survey after survey People think that they're a whole, everybody, it doesn't matter if you are a drug dealer running a murderous cartel out of Mexico or, or whether you are a pimp in Harlem running a string of prostitutes and dealing cocaine on the side, everybody thinks that they're better than 80 or 90% of everybody else. We have a view of ourselves that's higher than it ought to be. We all think that if you're going to be reincarnated, you're going to come back as something better. That that was the point. In Buddhism, though, most people don't realize that the sanitized American version of reincarnation is that you come back as another human being. In most, in in, in true Buddhism, you come back as a cricket, or a, or a slug, or you come back as a roach. Uh, most most of the life forms are at the bottom end. You, you've got to have a lot of, you build up a lot of works and karma to get to come back as a human being. But man thinks he's basically good. No matter how bad he is, he still thinks he's better than most other people. But he's not, because the only comparison that matters is the comparison to God's righteousness. Fifth point is that the term grace orientation means that we orient or align our thinking to God's policy and we live that out in our thinking, behavior, and habits. When I was in a young man and I was in ROTC, one of the things we learned, I think, in our second year was something called land navigation or orientation, orienteering. It used to be a, actually a sport Olympic sport, I think, at one time. The idea that you're given a map and a compass, you have to figure out where you are and then get to certain destinations and pick up whatever the uh, the object or the prize is at those and see who can make it through the circuit fast enough. And the, that basic concept was you're given a topographical map and you have to look at it and properly align it so that it fits reality. And then once you have that map oriented so it fits reality, then through the use of a compass, you can then chart your course and get to the points where you wish to go. That's the idea when we talk about grace orientation is we have to line up our thinking so that it fits the points of the compass in God's word so that we can align our thinking to reality. Otherwise, we're divorced from reality 
and we're living in a fantasy. And if you, you live in a fantasy, you're either neurotic or if you move into the fantasy castle, you're a psychotic. So grace orientation is the only thing that gives us an orientation to reality, and it always works with the plan of God, which is doctrinal orientation. So we have to treat other people like God treats us. This is what David's doing. Grace orientation always involves dealing with people, giving people for things that they don't deserve. It is a character transformation. It deals with people in kindness and in gentleness and humility, whether and, and they don't deserve it. So that's what we see here. David has understood grace, that he's given what God has promised him, not because there's any value in himself, but because of God's goodness and God's own character. And we look at passages like the fruit of the Spirit. This is not something that we can manufacture on our own. Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first thing. The reason it's the first thing is because in Galatians 5, 14, Paul had repeated the Leviticus command that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Well, how do we do that? We walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 then says, well, if love is the command, he's finally answering how that works. You walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit produces love in your life. And that's related to long-suffering, which is makrothemia, which is sometimes translated patience. It means you take a long time to get angry or irritated or grumpy. Okay, It's not being impatient. You have kindness and goodness to people and faithfulness. You're faithful to them because of this character God's given you. Gentleness, treating people. That doesn't mean you approve or validate their failures. God didn't approve or validate David's failures. David had to go through divine discipline just as Saul does. So this is... We see this exemplified in David, and it's not exemplified in Saul. And because Saul failed to be grace-oriented and to submit to God and his authority, Saul's life is coming to get... God orchestrates this ending in Saul. God isn't mentioned in chapter 31, but God's in the background. We know that nothing that is happening on Mount Gilboa is happening by chance. It's not random. God has brought the Philistines there. God has brought Saul and the army of Israel there. And this is the day that they meet their fate. And God will complete his promise to David by taking Saul out as the ruler. Now, Saul's problem was this problem of rebellion, disobedience, this lack of humility, Toward God, humility is obedience. Philippians chapter two, uh, verse uh, six and seven, that Jesus Christ demonstrated hum- humility, that by obedience he went to the cross. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. So obedience is submission to the authority of God. That's part of grace orientation is submitting to God's authority. David does, Saul doesn't. So the, the indictment from Samuel, when Saul refused to kill all of the Amalekites, and he left Agag alive and left a lot of their flocks and herds uh, alive, uh, he thought he had a right to that plunder, and that was God's plunder. That's why they use that word harem, the band that we've talked about that's, that's unfortunately and wrongly translated as holy war. And so Samuel indicts Saul in verse 23 of that chapter, chapter 15, and says, For rebellion is a, as the sin of witchcraft. And we've looked at that word. It's not witchcraft in what we think of with the, you know, the old crony with the black pointed hat and stirring her cauldron with her familiar spirit of the black cat and other things. That 
witchcraft is various forms of divination, various forms of trying to discover and make choices in life apart from the Word of God. So rebellion is rejecting God's direction and looking for direction somewhere else, and that is the the heart of, of demonism or Satanism because that's what Satan did. He rejected God's authority to map out his own course. So stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. God's message to Saul was to slaughter everybody, man, woman, child, sheep, cattle, everything. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. But Saul still reigned for another 10 or 12 years, perhaps, before God removed him finally and firmly from this life and from the throne. Then three verses later, in verse 26, Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul is being taken out, but not immediately. He's left in place to be a test for David and to prepare David and his spiritual character to ultimately be, uh, be the ruler. Now, the interesting thing as we look at the death of Saul is that Saul dies this ignominious death where he takes his own life. He doesn't get to grow to a ripe old age. It's interesting how the Bible values living a long life. Some of us are getting at the edge of that, and we're wondering why the Lord keeps me around. Okay, look at these verses. Genesis 25, 8. This is Abraham's death. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. That's praise. He's done well. We don't read that about Saul. Judges 8, 32. Even Gideon, who led the people back into idolatry, After his great victory over the Midianites, Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father. It's a blessing to live a long time. 1 Chronicles 29.28 states of David, he died in a good old age. He lived a long time, and he glorified God with his life. Saul did not do that. What we see here in this chapter as we look at Saul's, we hear Saul's last words. Last things we know that Saul said. He said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. I thought this is interesting. We are so prone to criticize Saul as being such a carnal, disobedient believer. But he says the same thing of the the Philistines that David said back when he heard Goliath's challenge in 1 Samuel 17. He says he's an uncircumcised man. He has no right to this land. He's thinking biblically. Saul, a little bit like Samson, at the end of his life recognizes some truth. And I think there's a glimmer here that, not of hope, He's not going to escape any more than Samson escaped. But there's a recognition that that there's something about this that is spiritual, it's covenantal, it's what God, I should have done. These uncircumcised Philistines have no right. And remember, it was uncircumcised Philistines that had arrested and imprisoned uh, Samson and had blinded, blinded him. So these are Saul's last words. It's not quite as good as Samson's in Judges 16.30. Samson's last words is a prayer to God. Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it, so that the dead he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. He wanted his last action to count 
in terms of what his original mission was to deliver Israel. But he never did that. He never delivered Israel. And then I want you to just hold your place here in chapter 31 and turn with me over to 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is too long to put up on the screen. I'll just put the first verse. These are David's last words. And remember, we're always have something in the background in Samuel. Remember, it was one book. They split it in two because it wouldn't fit on one scroll. And they split it at a good place because this is the end of David's reign, and then 2 Samuel begins with the reign. uh, I mean, this is the end of Saul's reign, and 2 Samuel begins with David's reign. But at the end of 2 Samuel, just like at the end of 1 Samuel, we have a death. Here we have the death of David. And listen to what David's last words are. Saul's last words are to his armor bearer, take your sword and skewer me and kill me. David's last words are, now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed, the Mashiach of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. David's last words. The spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. God instructing David that he must be a just and righteous ruler. And God goes on in verse 4, He shall be like the light of the morning. This is describing, this is David's mission statement as a king. He shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds. He'll bring illumination and light to the kingdom rather than darkness like Saul. Um, It'll be a morning without clouds like the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after rain. David goes on in verse 5, he says, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? It's all theocentric. It's God-focused. Question for us. When we die and we're on our deathbed, are we going to be God-centered? Are we going to be praising God for what he's done in our lives and allowed us to do as we've served him? Or are we going to be like Saul, just end it, put me out of my misery? Verse 6, but the sons of rebellion, in contrast, David says, the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands, but the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. The point is, David recognizes that God is the one who's blessed and prospered him, and those who have opposed him, that last part has to do with their uh, their judgment. So what we see here as we look at the last chapter in First Samuel, the last chapter in uh, Saul's life, is a recognition of what is God showing us here. One of the things we ought to recognize is that at the beginning of First Samuel, it was the period of the judges, that horrible dark period in Israel's history. Now, it didn't begin that way. It began with it began with the bright light of the conquest and the great victories that God gave the Israelites over Jericho and Ai, and some of the other towns. But as the conquest went on, the people didn't want to kill all those Canaanites anymore. They began to compromise with them. They began to live with them and intermarry with them to the point where they never completed the conquest, because they failed spiritually to obey God even when it was, was, was very difficult. And when you go through the book of Judges, you start with the first judge, Othniel, about whom nothing negative is said, and you go through six judge, major judges, and you end with uh, Samson, about whom nothing positive is said in Judges. 
Samson breaks every aspect of his Nazarite vow. He is a womanizer. He's disrespectful of his parents. He's disobedient. He is, he's just a, a, a wild bull in a china closet with no spiritual uh, direction whatsoever. And unlike the other five major judges, there's no deliverance whatsoever in, from, from the Philistines who are oppressing Israel at that point. So the book of 1 Samuel begins in this dark time. And we have Hannah who's oppressed in this marriage with her husband, Elkanah, by his other wife, Penina, who just is giving her a hard time all the time because she can't have a baby. And so she pours out her heart to God, praying for a child, and God is going to deliver her in the misery of her, of her marriage. It's not Elkanah's fault. He was a very kind and generous husband, but it was that other woman. And so she prays God is going to deliver her from that problem by giving her a son, but he's going to also use that son to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. And although Samson's not a military leader and judge like, uh, like uh, Barak or Deborah or Gideon or Jephthah, he's going to anoint the king that will do that. But before God's man for the king comes along, the people are going to say, we want to have a king like everybody else. And so God says, I'm going to choose Saul to be the first one, and they're going to learn what they, why, why it's wrong that they asked for that, that kind of a king. And so the book of 1 Samuel begins in the darkness of the oppression of the Philistines. And even though God in his grace blesses them with Saul and he has some victories over the Philistines to begin with, because the leader of the nation is in spiritual rebellion, the nation suffers the consequences and ends up being worse off at the end of 1 Samuel than they were at the beginning. They are totally defeated militarily at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. Their king and his three of his four sons are slaughtered in the battlefield, and they come under the oppression of the Philistines again. They've never truly been been delivered. And God's point is, unless you have a leader who is a man after my own heart, who is going to walk according to the commandments of Torah, you will not be delivered from the slavery of your sin. And you will not be delivered, and that's going to be depicted by their slavery to other, other nations. So the story of Samuel began with the nation under the dominion of the Philistines. They didn't have a king or a leader, and they were under divine judgment. And it's going to end that way with the exception that they have a new king. And that new king is a man after God's own heart. And so this is how it closes out. 1 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 31, 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. This is a summary statement in the first verse. The Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. What we see here is that as quick summary of the battle, the Philistines, who have encamped here at Jezreel to the north of Mount Gilboa, uh, come in with their thousands of tr- of experienced troops, well disciplined, well armed. They have weapons made of iron. Uh, There are some iron weapons in Israel, but primarily, as we saw at the Battle of Michmash, only Saul and Jonathan had weapons of iron. So they're outgunned, as it were. They're bringing a knife to a gunfight, and they're outnumbered, and the other side is more, uh, more professional. They have chariots, and here is a picture of... This is, Herod's spring is in here. That's where Gideon thinned out his uh, 300. This is the, um, a, a kibbutz now in Israel. But this mountain here on the side is Mount Gilboa. 
and the battle would have taken place down here on the plains. Why is that important? It's important because we learned that that not only did the Philistines have iron for their weapons, they had chariots. They had an expert chariot corps, and they attack with their light cavalry, as it were, uh, the the Israelites, and they overrun their positions, and the, the, the Israelites can only do one thing. Now, you can't really carry on much of a battle. That's a pretty steep slope. You can't carry on much of a battle there, but you can run there in the hopes that, that you, you know the chariots can't get after you up there, so hopefully you'll be able to escape or hide and get away with your life. And that's what's described here at, at the beginning. They fought against Israel. They fled. They were in a full rout. They were in a full panic. There's nothing heroic going on here. They are being beaten. They have getting the stuffing beaten out of them. And we're told that as they are pushed back in this panic and in this rout, that the Philistines pressed hard against them, uh, specifically against Saul and his sons. In the ancient world, not unlike battles in, in other other times, if you could take out the king or the generals, then you won the war. So they have identified Saul and his sons, and they're going, they're targeting them. And so the Philistines killed Jonathan. They kill Abinadab, and they kill Malkishua. These are Saul's sons. They're all over the age of 18 and therefore qualified to fight in the battle. There's only one son, Saul's youngest, uh, Ishbosheth, also I'd called Ishbaal, who is back at home. He's too young to serve. So he's going to be the one uh, survivor of uh, Saul's family. And so as the Philistines attack the Israelites, they're overrun. The Philistines' objective is to destroy Saul, his family, his the potential of his dynasty, and completely overrun and take Israel under their, under their control. This is seen in a negative note as you read the first two verses. Four times the term the Philistines are mentioned. That's a if this were an opera, you would have a, a deep bass uh, for the villain coming on the scene. That would be that note would be repeated again and again as the Philistines are coming. So they fight here at Mount Goboa. This is in the north. I want you to notice a little bit about the geography here. This is at the southeastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, and just to the um, northeast a little bit of Mount Gilboa is Beit Shan. Now, if you go to Israel, you've been to Israel with me, you've been to Beit Shan. We always go there on a trip. It's a magnificent site. But this is the old tell. I'll show you a picture of it in a minute. And we'll see a pic, an aerial shot looking back where you can see how all of this, all of this fits together. But Saul's going to die, take his life here. And then the, his body is going to be abused by the Philistines. He'll be decapitated. Then they're going to take his body over here to this uh, Canaanite city at Beit, Beit Shan, and they're going to hang his body on the wall. But at night, undercover, the men from Jabesh Gilead over here are going to come and take it down, take it back to Jabesh Gilead. They're distant relatives of Saul's, and they're going to give him, uh, give him a burial. So we're told that as the battle increased, the archers zero in on Saul, and he is wounded several times. He's turning into a pincushion, but none of the wounds are fatal. However, he knows that he will die, that the battle is lost, and that his wounds are serious. So he turns to his weapons carrier, his uh, armor bearer. And in verse 5, let me see, let me back up here uh, to verse, I left verse 4 out of my slide. How could I have done that? Verse 4 we read, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. So he wants to avoid that, that torture. What's interesting here is he's going to commit suicide, and if you 
think about the scripture, you think about what I call pop Christianity. Pop Christianity has the idea that if you commit suicide, you've committed some egregious sin. Now, I'm not saying this to justify suicide. I'm saying this to help us understand the Bible never mentions suicide as a special sin. You can look at 1 Corinthians 6, list of sins that will disqualify you from inheriting the kingdom, not losing salvation, but your inheritance in the kingdom. Same thing in uh, Galatians chapter 5, also Revelation chapter 21. You have the same kind of a list. Suicide's not mentioned in there. Murder is. Some people would say, well, that's covered because it's self-murder. But suicide is not singled out as this kind of horrendous sin that if you commit it, it's unforgivable. You'll lose your salvation. God can never forgive you. It's not presented that way at all. It's not in the list of the seven sins that abominates God. None of these things mention suicide. However, it is in some situations an admission of failure and failure to trust God. Uh, This would be true of Saul. But there's another dimension to that, and that is that he's doing what thousands of Americans did on the march westward as they faced the depredations and tortures of Apaches and Comanches and many other tribes, that they decided that it would be better to save that last bullet for themselves rather than be be staked out on an anthill somewhere and uh, kept alive uh, by degrees over the following days to see how long they could survive the pain and the and the torture. So he doesn't want to solve that. So the text says that that he does not want to be uh, to be tortured. But all of this is part of the discipline of God on him for the collapse of his spirituality, for his rebellion. It's a miserable death. He is defeated. He's lost the kingdom. His sons are dead. He has lost everything he had. And the kingdom of God is uh, under assault and is going to be lost, he fears, to the pagan, uncircumcised Philistines. Verses 5 and 6, we're told that when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword. He's following his leader, died with him. Verse 6, so Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Then we come to the next verse, and starting in verse 7, we see the consequences of Saul's death and this defeat. We read in verse 7 that, When the men of Israel learned this, they just panicked and they fled. When they saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. So they're they're just running wild. They're leaving their towns or villages all around the uh, valley of Esdralon and anywhere that they could be threatened by the Philistines. They're leaving everything. The nation, especially the northern part, collapses into anarchy and chaos. I've never seen anybody really bring out that point in commentaries, but this makes sense because it affects the north, not the south, in Judah. David has been working in Judah and the southern part, and he's going to be crowned king, and he's going to reign the first seven years out of Hebron in the south, and there's this time when the kingdom has to be put back together. We'll get into that as we go through the first part of Second Samuel. So there's a complete rout, complete panic, and the, the, the Philistines take all of these towns and villages and occupy them. Verse 8, we read, So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent word throughout the land to the Philistines. They are going to have a celebration and a party They proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people because in their view, their god Dagon has finally recovered from that horrible episode where God made him fall on his face and bow down to the Ark of the Covenant and then cut his hands and feet off. And now their god has given them victory over the god of of Saul and they are going to wipe out uh, this plague of the Israelites. 
So to show their domination, this is the same thing the Muslims did when they came into Jerusalem. They wanted to show their superiority to the God of the Bible, so they built the dome of the rock over the rock. That's the foundation stone that was where the Ark of the Covenant had been. According to history and tradition, that was where uh, Abraham was to have sacrificed Isaac. They are going to put the dome of the rock, a, a Muslim mosque, on the site of the Jewish temple to show that they're superior to the God of the Bible. And they're going to build it tall enough to where it's higher than the domes on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then to make it clear to everyone who can read Arabic, they put scripture all on the inside of the dome of the rock. And they're all scriptures from the Quran that talk about Jesus as a blasphemer, that he's not really God, that he's only a man, because the dome of the rock is one of the greatest anti-Christian, anti-Jewish, anti-God pieces of blasphemy on the planet. It is a declaration of holy war by the fact that it sits there. Of course, you're not going to hear too many people tell you that. That's too inflammatory. So they take his armor, put it in the temple of the Atzeroth. They understand this is a religious conflict. And they fasten his body to the wall of Beit Shan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard this, well, first of all, let's look at this. We'll get a couple of shots here. This is looking down the main cardio of cardia of the of the Greek city, Scythopolis, that was also called Beit Chan. And the tell that we're looking at there is the tell of the ancient Canaanite Beit Chan. And there's excavations going on at the top and they've uncovered a lot of the uh, Canaanite artifacts from from this time. Now here's the aerial shot of this area. Here is the ancient Tell of Beit Shan here. You're looking basically north. Here, here's the cardio, this heavy white line that you see right here. That's that main cardio we just saw. This is the Greek city of Scythopolis. You can see the uh, temple there in the middle. And if you're looking north, over here to the left is, is um, Mount Gilboa. Out here in the plains, out here, this is where the indoor is located. But this is looking looking north, you see that. And then back behind us would be the Jordan River and Transjordan and the men of Jabesh-Gilead. So when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. One of the few times you see cremation in the Old Testament. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. They treat Saul with respect. Saul had rescued them early in his career as king, and they're showing uh, respect for him. Now, briefly, I want to close out and just talk a little bit about the sin unto death. The Bible talks about the fact that as a believer, we can become so disobedient and so rebellious that God takes us out one way or another. Sometimes he lets you stay along for a while like he did Saul because he wants you to be a test for other believers. Psalm 118, 17, and 18 is an Old Testament passage that talks about this where David says, I shall not die, but I will live. Why would he say I shall not die? Because apparently he had sinned so badly that he thought God would take him out. I shall, like Saul. Psalm 51, he prayed to God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. And the reason he did is because after 1 Samuel 15, God took his spirit away from Saul and David didn't want that to happen. And so David was afraid God would, at this point, take him out because of uh, his sin. So he says, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death, like Saul. That's the subtext. The New Testament, 1 John 5, 16, we have a passage. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, that implies that there is a sin that does lead to death. Some sins will not lead to death, but uh, he, that implies that there is a sin unto death. 
And it says, if he sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. And there are examples in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is castigating the Corinthians for the way they are abusing the Lord's table. They're not confessing their sin. They're using the Lord's table as an opportunity for gluttony and drunkenness. They would have a, a feast, a meal, and, and they would often call this a love feast in the early church. The church, everybody would come together, they'd have a whole meal and then end with the Lord's table. And so Paul says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner they're, they're not just out of fellowship. They are abusing what is going on at the Lord's table at, to use it as an opportunity for sin. Uh, and so, so if you drink the cup in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. That's confession of sin. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For... He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, out of fellowship, unconfessed sin, abusing the Lord's table, taking it in an unworthy manner. So if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak, osthenes. That means they're spiritually weak. They're not very strong spiritually. That's one form of divine discipline. And they're sick. This is a word for physically sick. Sometimes osthenes means physically sick, but when you have it linked with this other word, one refers to a spiritual weakness, the other refers to a physical uh, weakness or sickness. And many sleep. That's a euphemism for death. So there was sin unto death in the, among the Corinthians because of their abuse at the Lord's table. That's one example. Other examples are Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, they lied against the Holy Spirit, and instantly they died. That first example of anybody getting slain by the Spirit. have to have a little knowledge of charismatic heresy to get that one. Other, other examples also, you have the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. And a warning of the possibility of the sin unto death with the incestuous man in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So there is a sin unto death. The believer who just stays in rebellion, stays in carnality, God may take them out early in a miserable way. It's just self-induced misery. You reject God, rebel against him, and you can only do it for so long before God pulls you off the field and benches you. And that's what the sin unto death is. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to come to understand your grace and your goodness to Israel that they did not deserve David at all. They have been following Saul. They have been compromising with uh, the idolatrous religions of the Canaanites. And yet you and your grace gave them David because of a greater plan, a plan to provide a savior through the descendants of David that we all by grace through faith can be saved from our sin, can experience the remission of sin. And Father, we thank you for this and we pray that you will help us to understand and be motivated, corrected, and strengthened by your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.